Welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. I'm TJ Daw, and this season my co-host Mario Sikora and I will be exploring the Enneagram through the lens of specific directors whose work demonstrates themes related to the nine Enneagram types and three instinctual biases. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Movie number two that we're going to talk about today is, in many ways, a, a real change in direction. Malcolm X. Malcolm X is 1992 American epic biographical drama film about the African-American activist Malcolm X. Directed and co-written by Spike Lee, stars Denzel Washington in the movie that he should have won an Academy Award for. I do not know who won it that year. Uh, I meant to look it up, but it would have saddened me too much, I'm sure. Malcolm, uh, I'm sorry, Denzel won it, I think, the next year for the hurricane? No, th- um, no it was Training Day? He won it for Training, training day. day, right. About okay. a decade later. Oh, it was a decade later. Okay, all right. So I think he was nominated for the hurricane, too, but he didn't win for that. All right. So, uh, yeah. Boy, what a performance uh, uh, of Denzel Washington. Uh, So anyway, uh, let's see. So he's in the title role, also starring Angela Bassett, Albert Hall, uh, Al Freeman Jr., who is, I think, great as uh, uh, Elijah Muhammad, Delroy Lindo, a frequent Spike Lee collaborator. Lee has a supporting role, as does, uh, well, let's see, um, ah, appearances by Bobby Seale, founder of the Black Panthers, Al Sharpton. Uh, makes a quick, quick cameo, and Nelson Mandela shows up at the end of the movie. It's the second of four film collaborations between Washington and Lee. Uh, so, Malcolm X. Uh, Malcolm X, one of the towering figures of the civil rights movement. He was, I don't know, in some ways, the the the, the yang to uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s yin. Um, and um, greatly misunderstood, scared the bejesus out of white people in the early to mid-60s, you know, for good reason, quite frankly, right? Uh, Justifiable Mm -hmm. reasons. But uh, the movie traces him. I think the movie's, what, three and a half hours long almost? I mean, it's a really long movie, right? Um, And it traces him, uh, Malcolm X's story, from his youth as, uh, you know, kind of a hoodlum and a thief. Until he gets arrested, sent to jail uh, for a a crime uh, that uh, his white female uh, accomplices did not receive harsh sentences for. By the way, do you guys know who the who played the judge in that scene? Do you know who that guy was? Uh, the judge who sentences Spike, or, I'm sorry, Malcolm X to prison is William Kunstler, who was a civil rights attorney who um, uh, defended the most famously defended the uh, Chicago Seven, which mm. was uh, there's a good movie about from um, oh shoot, uh, oh the guy who did West Wing, uh, the the writer director Aaron Sorkin. Uh, thank you, thank you, TJ. Right. So uh, anyway, quick cameo by William Kunstler, which was an interesting nod to to the time. So Malcolm goes to prison. He is. You know, uh, he is a resistant prisoner, right, for sure. Spends a lot of time in the hole and, you know, tries to combat, uh, you know, having his dignity taken away. Eventually uh, comes under the influence of Albert Hall, who is a uh, minister in the nation of Islam, converts to 
Islam, uh, in particular the the approach espoused by the nation of Islam, and then, like many converts, becomes quite vocal in his advocacy of the message of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, as he's referred to throughout. Eventually, however, the nation starts to turn on him. He starts to become, number one, too big, right? Uh, he's getting well-known because of how effective he is. And then Malcolm starts to become disillusioned by the behavior of Elijah Muhammad, finds out that he's not quite as pure as, um, as uh, Malcolm had thought. He leaves, uh, I'm not sure if he left or was thrown out of the Nation of Islam. I think there's two perspectives on it and, uh, and you know, kind of starts his own approach. He has a conversion to a more traditional uh, version of Islam, uh, goes to Mecca, spends time in Egypt, comes back, is, we'll say, mellowed a little bit. Uh, I don't know if mellowed is quite the right word. I'd, I'd like to think he matures a bit because uh, some of his rhetoric was pretty harsh, um, you know, prior to that. I mean, there's the famous episode that actually even went too far for the nation of Islam, where he referred to uh, the assassination of Kennedy as chickens coming home to roost, uh, which, you know, did not go over well, was, you know, fond of referring to white people as devils and that sort of thing. So he, you know, he softened his stance on a few things and eventually was assassinated. Thought that the Nation of Islam was behind it, or at least some members of the Nation of Islam were behind it. And But whew, what a movie. I mean, just what a powerful, powerful story. Wonderfully told. It was extremely well directed and crafted. Um, again, I kept thinking, all right, this is a three and a half hour movie. What would I take out? And there wasn't a whole lot, maybe the first third or so, I, you know, uh, but, you know, I, I didn't think there was a weak scene in it, you know, and uh, told a huge story. Again, I think Denzel Washington's best performance uh, embodied uh, Malcolm X, not an easy thing to do. Malcolm was a, a hugely charismatic person. What else, guys? Tell me about your reaction to Malcolm X. Let me hear from you first, Milton. Yeah, um, it was some of the best three hours I've watched a movie, you know, cause there's some three hour movies. You're like, all right, I could have kept this and um, saved this for the, the, you know, back in the day, the Blu-ray extra release copy or whatever. Right. right? <laughs> like I didn't need all this, but I think Spike Lee did an amazing job with all the scenes he added to help really help people see a buildup in a totality of the humanity of Malcolm X, you know, not just, the, the box that people have, because there's uh, multiple boxes and you don't fit in that box of Malcolm X. And it's, uh, so he just gives, he widens the container um, and tries to take the container away so you can see him as an actual person. And so I I had, this is one movie I definitely have seen before I, I rewatched it. And uh, it, it just, it moved me. And one thing it does, it it helps me to really appreciate because I have uncles before I ever watched the movie, you know, I knew about Malcolm X grew up school stuff, people talking about him, but I hadn't really de dove and delve into some of his uh, work in his life. And, um, it's, it's quite amazing because my uncles, they wish we'll go to the next movie and we'll kind of talk about that, but they, they went, you know, uh, down there and they got pictures and everything. And so wow. they had a rich connection with, Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam, 
And I had a, I had a couple of uncles who were like, it was like they were half and half, you know, like they were a nation of Islam, but not completely at the same right, time. Right, and so, right. so they'd be passing out pamphlets sometimes and saying stuff, but then you look at their behavior, you'd be like, are you sure you with them? <laughs> All right. But nevertheless, it helped me to see, because I think I was also raised where I didn't get the full totality of Malcolm X, right? Uh, it helped me to see more of like the amazing way that he brought dignity to African-Americans and how important like his role was in the civil rights movement for black people and black communities. Yeah. Um, because he gave it things that, that like the Ying, like Martin Luther King didn't necessarily give to the black community. Right. You need a little bit of both. So I absolutely loved it. And yeah, I just felt that he represented, um, once again, the variance and the totality of black people, the message, everything, the way he, you know, we, we hit the type one part too, the way he like hit the different sides and like, it's just beautiful. Yeah. 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 A, a couple of th- things, you know, it's funny because in the simplistic history of that time, Martin was the nice guy and Malcolm was the scary guy, right? Uh, the, you know, the, the one who, seem to advocate for violence um and i think this movie makes it clear that malcolm wasn't as scary as you know uh we might have you know thought in retrospect again i'll say you can understand why white people in particular were unnerved by what he was saying at the time because no black man had ever spoken like that before Right. I mean, and, and gotten away with it, um, right. uh, you know, and if you go back and read some of Martin Luther King's writings, he, he wasn't as cuddly as, you know, we might think that he was. Right. So, no, um, <laughs> right. So, um, yeah. So I, I think this movie really helped to, like you say, humanize it. And again, there is this moral core that is very one It's this. You know, this is what's right. And even it's why I think the betrayal that he felt uh, from the Nation of Islam, particularly when he started to find out that Elijah Muhammad had, um, you know, children by, you know, multiple women. Malcolm was just crushed by that, right, of, you know, being disillusioned that at first tried to tried to rationalize it, right, until he couldn't anymore and then had to take a moral stance. And um, so, TJ, reaction to Malcolm X? Yeah, a couple of things. Just to build on what Milton was saying, uh, I found this quote from a Spike Lee interview where he said, I think we're helping redefine Malcolm X because for the most part, white people's view came from the white media, which portrayed him as anti-white, anti-Semitic, and pro-violence. It's funny, when we had the national press junket for this film, many of the white journalists said they felt they'd been robbed that they'd been cheated because they'd never been taught about Malcolm X in school or they'd only been told that he was anti-white and violent. A great miseducation has gone on about this man. So there's a huge one-ishness in that statement, which I'm sure underlies his desire to make the movie, is we have to right this wrong. This man has been villainized unjustly, and the world needs to know from a black person, because that's another detail. Norman Jewison was originally going to be slated to direct this. Spike Lee lobbied to get the movie and he also acknowledged that norman jewison graciously said you're right it should be you and not me and he didn't have to do that but that's part of his reasoning is saying you know like as a black man i i have a sense that this is a man from my community 
that needs to be portrayed accurately to the world, particularly to white people. And then he also said, you know, in, the, in that Charlie Rose interview, he interviewed hundreds of people who knew Malcolm, and he couldn't imagine them opening up to a white filmmaker the way they would to a black filmmaker. So again, there's this, there's this fire in his belly and in his eyes just to make this movie about a figure who himself was like that. And then another quote about it that I thought was really interesting, he said, Malcolm was a very complex person. He was constantly evolving his outlook and his ideology and always trying to seek the truth. If he found it, he was not scared of being called a hypocrite. If he found a higher truth, he would say, I was wrong. All that stuff I said before is wrong, and this is what I believe. And that's something very few people do. And I think that statement itself speaks to the very high side of one. Ones in general are constantly trying to improve themselves. But the area of life that's probably hardest for one, maybe for anybody at all to do, is to improve their own moral sensibilities. It's a lot easier to say, you know, I could sit up straighter or I could, I could, you know, participate more in the house, in the housework, you know, where I live. It's a lot harder to say this fundamental idea that animated my actions and my interactions with the world was incomplete and flawed. And upon reflection, you know, with new evidence, I'm choosing to admit that publicly, especially for a big public figure, and say, this is what I believe now. What I said before wasn't 100% right, and I regret having said that. All right, again, this takes us back to this quality of objectivity I mentioned earlier, right? Of this willingness to say, oh, no, wait, this is what the evidence is. This is what I believe now, and that's okay, right? The unhealthy one is the one that holds on to the rigidity, no, I am right. And as an executive coach, I I remember once working with a guy who was a transmitting one who, when I was, he was struggling in his role, and his boss wanted me to work with him, and his reaction was, I'm doing fine. There's nothing I'm going to learn from you. He literally said that to me upon meeting him. There's nothing I'm going to learn from you. I I know what I'm doing and I'll be okay. And then six months later, he called me out of the blue and said, you know what? I'm struggling and I need help and was a completely different person, right? So again, it was this, you know, this guy had it and he ended up being one of my I'd say most successful clients in terms of, you know, creating change in himself because of that. No, it's important to improve. It's important to grow once I recognize it, let go of my fears and so forth. So let's see a couple of other things. I keep thinking, I keep thinking about the scenes in Egypt. Uh, There was actually one of the mosques that he was in. There there was one with red carpets. I don't know if you guys remember, but I've actually been to that mosque and been in there, which was really cool. I've been to Egypt a number of times. And uh, so that was nice for me. I think it's the first time I've watched it since I've been to Egypt. And I also always laugh at the scenes where people are at the pyramids because just to give give you guys Milton, I'm sorry. Have you ever been to Cairo and the pyramids? No. Okay. Not yet. Okay. Not yet. Good. Take the chance and go if you can. But the pyramids are right on the edge of the city, right? So across the street from the Sphinx is a Kentucky fried chicken. Okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But on the other side of the pyramids is desert as far as you can see. Right. So they always film it from the desert side. Right. And so, you know, they're riding the camels and they look like they've got to take these camels out this long journey or something, you know. So I always get such a kick out of the way they portray the pyramids in movies, because, you know, if you're looking this direction, you would think it's right in the middle of the city. You know, if you're looking this direction, you would think it's in the middle of the desert. So 
right? So uh, that, that just it was it was a fun uh, kick for me to see. <laughs> Get your chicken and walk over and see the. Space. It's it's crazy. It's it's just the craziest damn thing you ever saw. You know, I mean, it's you know, it's you know, literally right across the street is more stores and more people and you know you know knickknack shops and all that sort of stuff. But uh, great stuff. Now, granted, it was 1963. It might have been a little bit different. The Kentucky Fried Chicken might not have been there, but you get my point. Uh, let's see what else do we want to say about Malcolm X. Again, I just want to point out great, great, great use of, use of music, uh, music from the period. Curtis Mayfield, his music shows up throughout the movie a number of places, right? So uh, people get ready. There was a couple other songs they used. I can't remember. New World Order, a great, great Curtis Mayfield song from his last movie. I'm sorry, his last CD. Uh, Curtis Mayfield, for those of anybody not familiar with him, a uh, musician from the 1960s, black musician, who was one of the first black musicians to get ownership of his uh, publishing rights. And, uh, you know, famously, Barry Gordy from Motown would, you know, own all the publishing rights. So the singers would, you know, not make a lot of money. The songwriters would not make a lot of money. He came along and said, no, 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 I am going to own my music. Kind of a one-ish stance right and if you look at the music of curtis mayfield such as superfly the superfly soundtrack there is this one-ish tone of making this moral statement uh, about the world that he's seeing so i don't know you curtis mayfield fan milton oh yeah he's before um, your time but you know. he, is, he is but i was raised but i was raised on like old school music uh, so I definitely know that my mom loved her some Curtis Mayfield. She's like, he'd be telling the truth. I'm like, you're right. You're right, though. It's the raw, rugged truth. you true. It's right. Yeah. Uh, sad story with uh, Curtis Mayfield. He was, uh, there was a uh, concert and a, uh, a rack of lights fell on him, paralyzed him. And uh, it, it cut short his life, although he did manage to make one final, a wonderful album before he passed him. Uh, I think the late 80s, early 90s. I feel like we haven't done justice to this movie, but again, I'll just tell people, you know, uh, the, the one theme filters throughout this. I have seen places where Malcolm X is um, uh, identified as an Enneagram Type 6. I don't know. I haven't explored Malcolm X, uh, in, in, you know, watched his videos, studied enough about him. Every depiction I've seen of him, if you've seen the movie, what is it, Godfather of... Uh, Harlem, the TV series about Bumpy Johnson that Malcolm X plays a part of. There's always a whole lot of one stuff going on here. And I think as he's played by Denzel Washington, clearly another transmitting one character. I don't know. Any any debate for you guys on that? Yeah, for me, I I saw I saw some I saw some six in there. I saw some some transmitting six going on there. And I think of it from the lens of and and this is the qualities that one and six both have in common when it's yeah. like I'm finding a rule, I'm finding an authority, something to cling to. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of when he was with uh, everything was honorable Elijah Muhammad, like and he was like down. He was like, I would give my life for him. Yeah. And then um, and I don't know whether this is like to say that maybe he's not a six or definitely is a six to a certain degree when he talks about like not being able to comprehend betrayal. So that was like that right there because he had found what he was clung to. And then all of a sudden it was like, Oh my goodness, I have to unravel all of this. 
And I've actually know a a six in my personal life that has had a journey like that. Like he didn't go to Mecca. He's not with the Nation of Islam, but <laughs> he's had a spiritual journey in that type of way where he was so fixated on like like a very watered down, basic, um, unintelligent, really spiritual faith. And then it came into crumbles, the foundation, and it sent him in a tailspin. He couldn't believe it. But now he's coming on the other side and like he's he's more grounded. He has a better nuance of his uh, spiritual component. So I do see that. I mean, if he's the one, I wouldn't be shocked either. But yeah. Yeah, it's an inexact science, right? Uh, when when we talk about these things, but I I hear what you're saying and uh, don't disagree. TJ, there's no doubt in my mind that he's a transmitter. Yeah, and that comes across in every scene. So in the earlier scenes, when he's a petty criminal, he really dresses in a peacock way. You know, he wears a bright red suit in one scene. You know, he wears this spiffy looking hat. Yeah. He just looks great. Um, doesn't hurt that. Denzel Washington's incredibly handsome, but he's also got the charisma yeah. of a transmitter. And then later, when he's converted, so he's, his, his personal style is much more reserved. You know, he, he hasn't, he wears his hair naturally and he wears a very conservative suit, but his charisma as a preacher is undeniable. Yeah. And again, you know, some of that might be Denzel Washington's portrayal of him, but Denzel had played him off Broadway on stage. Like, he really studied this guy yeah. and just the way he's able to communicate from his heart, but just how magnetic he is. Yeah. Transmitter right up and down. Yeah. Whether he's a one or a six to me came into debate with those early scenes when he's a petty criminal, because in those early scenes where it's the unhealthy version of him, he didn't seem like an unhealthy one in terms of like kind of the stuff I was saying earlier, yeah. uh, browbeating, scolding, nitpicking or anything like that. He was a petty criminal. He not in service of a higher cause or anything like right. that. Just, he just seemed kind of like a bon vivant. Right. Like, I just want to have fun. I want to do drugs. I want to go dancing. I want to have sex. I want to get money for nothing. All of that. So hard to say, you know, as yeah. you mentioned. Yeah. But then the scenes later, when we see the Malcolm X that the world knew, there's this one particular scene that, well, for one thing, as, as we're seeing him turn into the Malcolm X that the world really got to know, any scene where he's preaching, the second time I saw the movie, I watched it twice and prepped for this, second time I found myself tearing up watching him because he just embodies dignity so much and he is tremendously inspiring and he's able to rein in that charisma in a certain way in that he's not speaking loudly but there's this one scene when one of the muslim brothers has been taken by the police after being beaten by the police and he leads a whole cadre of people to go get him and he speaks quietly with precision and dignity the whole time He's never rude, but he also won't take no for an answer. And he just embodies power without ever raising his voice, without ever doing anything threatening. And then through the, just the four, and this is a very one thing too, is like the police say, you can't see him. You're not a relative. You're not his lawyer. He still manages to see the guy. And then as soon as he sees him, he says, get an ambulance now. And they do. And then they, and then they say to him, okay, you got what you wanted. You know, now break it up. And he says, no, I'm not satisfied to the hospital and he leads the entire march to the hospital and then when he finally gets confirmation from the doctor that he is being treated he just turns to the crowd and just gently holds up his hand and all the muslims switch direction 90 degrees and he points one finger and they all march and not everybody in that crowd is a muslim you know a lot of people are chanting and waving their fists but everybody follows and the cop makes the comment it's too much power for one man to have 
but you never get the sense that he's drunk on his power. You never get the sense that he believes that this is about him. And this is in the phase of his career where he was prefacing almost everything he said when he was preaching with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad tells us. You never got the sense that he wanted to have the top job. He was perfectly happy to pay homage to the spiritual leader that changed his life. So I find that, again, could be very healthy one, could be very healthy six. It's, It's hard to tell. It's uh, yes, and and again, you know, and we've talked about this, you know, a number of times in these podcasts that um, most portrayals of characters are not pure enneagram types because you bring different elements. If it's a real life person, you've got that person's enneagram type. You've got the script. You've got the actor. You've got the influence of the director. Right. So, um, like Tom Condon likes to say, it's a one-ish character or a six-ish character. There are some that are blatant you know, uh, Enneagram, John Wayne, you know, always an eight, right? I mean, there's never any doubt about that sort of thing. Russell Crowe is, you know, very clear, either an eight or a five and all of his movies. But, um, but yeah, uh, so again, uh, for me, I could be comfortable with either interpretation. I'll also add that I think Denzel Washington is probably an eight in real life. And, you know, so sort of adds, uh, another element right i think that denzel kind of brings eightness into you know a lot of what he does that helps to flavor some of the characters also but yeah so again great great movie i would say that as a biographical film this stands up with anything honestly i can't think of anything that uh, is a better biopic than this uh, more watchable more interesting more informative watch malcolm x and not only did it not win Best Picture, it wasn't even nominated. And Denzel Washington, I looked this up, lost Best Actor to Al Pacino in Scent of a Woman, which oh, is yet another movie year. that yeah. no one references anymore. <laughs> no one screens. Nobody cares about it. It won't make the top 10 list of Al Pacino's movies. Yes. Um, yes. You know, look, speaks to the theme here of inherent... Uh, you know, institutional racism in so many of our uh, things. There's just no other way to explain this, uh, quite frankly. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Okay, so interesting shift into our next movie. And uh, um, I think, TJ, you're going to tell us about get on the bus right by the way i just want to say a movie i love and have seen multiple times and uh, always feel really enraptured and uncomfortable 
just watching get on the bus. Okay, so but we'll get into that in a moment. Okay, so uh, TJ, tell us about Get on the Bus, please. So Get on the Bus came out in 1996. I believe it was released on the exact one year anniversary of the Million Man March in Washington D.C., which was a big social activist movement in which one million black men came to Washington, approximately to highlight and pledge to work on economic and social challenges to the African-American community. So the story of the movie is it's about a dozen or so black men who traveled to the march from L.A. to Washington on a travel bus. And they're a really diverse group, and the group includes an actor, a former gang member, a father and his teenage son who are shackled together as part of the son's parole for some robberies. There's a gay couple, there's an old man, there's a strict Muslim, there's an aspiring filmmaker documenting the trip who at one point is referred to jokingly as Spike Lee Jr. And along the way, they talk, they argue, their views and prejudices about each other come to light. There's a fist fight at one point, and they eventually get to D.C. and traffic is jammed, and they're elated to be there and just see how much, how many people are there uh, for all the right reasons. And then they discovered that the senior member of the group, played by Ozzie Davis, has had a heart attack. They bring him to the hospital, he's treated, but he still dies. So the group ends the trip having been brought closer together in spite of all their differences. We, the viewer, get to see a tremendous multiplicity of black men. The movie came out in 1996. It was a complete flop at the box office. And it's still a very obscure movie. It's one of those movies when people talk about Spike Lee's body of work. Rarely gets mentioned. Mario, if you hadn't mentioned it, you know, I'd never heard of it, quite honestly. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. Uh Yeah. It's a largely forgotten movie, and unjustly so. It's excellent and has a tremendous ensemble cast with wonderful performances from everyone yes uh so you're right unheralded movie interesting to me it was made for 2.4 million dollars made 5.6 million in the box office so not a well-known movie incredible cast our third straight movie that features ozzy davis now he was very prominent in uh do the right thing obviously he played the mayor um very prominent in this one he's one of the major characters and i don't know if you guys caught this but he delivered the eulogy at malcolm x's funeral in in real life um uh, so uh ozzy davis and ruby d uh from do the right thing were very very active in the civil rights movement in the 60s and ossie davis did the uh eulogy for malcolm x at his funeral and that's what is playing at the end of uh, uh, malcolm x milton i'm curious about your reaction to get on the bus had you seen it before i had not seen it before but it's interesting because it it feels like when he makes movies, it feels like I've lived, like I've lived an experience because of my family and like my, and like my growing up. So it's, it's always interesting. It feels very familiar, even though I had not seen the movie. And so it was all of these, once again, polarizing or <laughs> dualistic views on a variety of topics within like the black community and period, just about leaders and and just every single thing like it, it goes over so many different things but they are views and things that i've heard of at family gatherings you know uh things i've experienced and i think primarily of my uncles because they went they, they went like they went they have pictures um and like i said even some of the uncles who do they do anything to really help like like our society no they don't um but they all went and so knowing that there was a part of the experience that they had that was 
some version of get on the bus, it really touches, it brings it home to me, you know, because there are these different views. There are these different complexities into how do we solve and work on these problems and these issues that Spike Lee, once again, is bringing up like, oh, here's the issue. Here's the issue. Here's a problem. What are we going to do about it? Are you going to be on, like, and then make you feel uncomfortable, but then bring you back in with the reality of life, which it was like, yeah, we doing all that bickering about stuff that like these things we do need to address, but they shouldn't divide us in a way that we forget about our real life sense of being able to see each other for who we really are and to be together because that's yeah. more important. So, so that last point there is the one that, you know, always intrigues me about this because I don't know that you could make this movie today with the same dialogue right um because again uh, number one lots of profanity and that sort of thing but homophobia misogyny anti-semitism you know i mean it's just it's it's all over the place and on the one hand the characters were almost stock characters but they also felt tremendously human to me right you could tell that spike was populating the bus with different types because here's i want to talk about this and i want to talk about this i want to talk about this so i need this guy and i need this guy and i need this guy um and i think this touches on what you were saying milton these people feel like people that we know all right um and it raises the question of how do we treat people that we love when they have characteristics about them that we can't abide by right uh, how do we deal with that racist relative that is otherwise a good person right I mean, you know right. Uh, right but says things at gatherings that you're like yeah we don't say that anymore right uh, you, you know kind of thing um so for me that speaks to the humanity of this movie and other spike movies yeah i definitely agree a couple of things we'll, uh, I'll point out. One of the sub-themes is about the father and son. Again, we have this theme of fathers and sons that uh, you know was in uh, Do the Right Thing, but also here. And I'm drawing a blank on the two characters. The son was named Smooth, uh, or that's what he called himself, but Evan and Evan Jr. And Evan Jr. had been caught stealing money at a grocery store and was... Uh, in a little bit of heavy-handed imagery here, sentenced to being shackled to his father for three days. And so they go to the Million Man March, literally in chains, um, which was kind of loaded and kind of uh, disconcerting to some of the other um, participants. Uh, There were two gay men uh, on the bus, which made some of the other uh, passengers uncomfortable once that was exposed, right? And again, led to some really homophobic, insulting uh, comments. Wendell Pierce, who joined the trip partway through, the car dealer who was going to to the march uh, to sell cars, was the, I guess, the the black Republican who came along uh, for the trip. And you know, I, again, I don't think that his dialogue could be written today. <laughs> Ooh, no, it could not. Uh, so, Milton, I'm curious, uh, again, so there has been an evolution in how people speak for the better, right? Things that mm. we say, things that we don't say. I am curious about your reaction to the language. In- oh, it was, it was realistic. It was authentic. Yeah. And I think that's what I appreciate most about 
Spike Lee's films. There's there's not a um, let me try to soften the blow. Let me butter it up. No, it's raw. It's the truth. It's authentic. These are like like I said. These are conversations I've heard being like growing up, like at Thanksgiving. You have uncles and cousins and who I don't know if they're a relative or not, but they hear eating with us and there's an argument or a discussion and they're talking about these subjects and the words are just as strong as they were on the bus. Um, so for me, it, it just felt really authentic and real. And I was like, mm-hmm, yep, mm, I've heard that. I've heard that perspective. Yep. That one, too. So a couple of parts. I, I, I don't think the part with Richard Belzer coming on as the substitute bus driver, I don't think was wholly effective uh, in trying to capture that dynamic. It felt a little bit forced to me, a little bit, um, you know, uh, uh, but the rest of it from, you know, again, my perspective, look, I'm obviously a white man, but I lived in the city, you know, all of my adult life. And so I, you know, know a lot of those people as well, right? So uh, I, again, it, it rang true to me, and it was certainly fascinating to me that it spoke to the time. Again, Milton, you were a young, uh, you were a child then. I mean, it was no, seven, eight years old. Yeah, there you go. Right. So, um, <laughs> but you know, I remember the Million Man March vividly, and it was very polarizing at the mm-hmm. time, right? Because even though it was for noble intent. Farrakhan was very polarizing at the time, right? I mean, and so there was this concern, and it was almost, again, thematically, a repetition of what we're finding today when the reaction among some to the slogan or the the phrase Black Lives Matters is, well, all lives matter, right? So there was a reaction in the air of, well, why should it just be a black man march? kind of thing right you know what's what's the point of that again misunderstanding or not appreciating what the true circumstances was so for me this really captured the time in a way that uh, i think do the right thing did as well but most movies don't there's two things that popped up for me one thing is kind of speaking to even connecting to the movie malcolm x about when he's first speaking from elijah muhammad it's there is black supremacy, a, a part of it coming out. Like all of it's not, but some of it is, right? And there's reasons for it and everything. And even looking at it to the levels of get on the bus, like uh, Louis Farrakhan, the very big, like, and, and like he was strong. And there's like a, it's not always like a direct black supremacy necessarily, but there's a form of we've got to get ourselves together before we can like engage with anyone else um, and separate ourselves a little bit to like do this uh, or completely depending on (laughs) the perspective. So I find that to be the thing that is probably one of the um, most polarizing or scary is things because first of all, the whole supremacy thing, we, nobody needs to do that. But number two is that, like the book cast talks about how like we have a hierarchy that's been built in. It's like an invisible hierarchy. It's not invisible, but there's not necessarily set rules like the caste system and feudalism in Europe, but we have it where the hierarchy. Yeah. You know? And so looking at it that way helps to like really put the lens in a more of a perspective where it makes sense, but it, and it sucks that, like you said, there's reactions every time there is a unification or black people as a whole find a way to be more dignified 
there is a hard reaction to all of a sudden, like we have to make sure that they don't, you know, get there. Really quick, throwing this in there, I'm going to throw this in there. The reaction to President Obama being and uh, like being a president, the reaction of who was elected next yes. was is purely a reaction. It wasn't based on yes. who I feel could be the no purely a reaction. Yes, because of the cast, like, it's like somebody from the lower cast is here. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I completely agree with you. You know, not not to go too egghead on this, but you know, this is kind of what Hegel was all about when you know, in reactions to history, right? So, one event causes a reaction overlying it. You know, from there we get Hegelian dialectics, uh, actually misinterpretation of what Hegel was talking about, too. And some would say there's kind of a law of three thing there. There's this reaction and so forth, but not in a positive way, certainly with uh, in honor of Spike Lee, uh, Agent Orange um, as, as the reaction to uh, there, there was uh, the, the, there was a Vanity Fair interview uh, where. Uh, they asked Spike Lee, you know, uh, what, who, or what do you hate? And he said, uh, "I don't hate anybody." No, wait, Agent Orange, and then you know, something <laughs> like that. So, anyway, <laughs> yeah. So we, ju- no, I don't think we lost viewers on that one. No, don't worry, don't worry about that. So, uh, <laughs> all right. So, um, good. Thank you, Mill. TJ, get on the bus. <laughs> Yeah, um, I don't know that I agree with what the both of you said, is that this movie wouldn't necessarily be made today with that language, mm. particularly because the homophobes are proven wrong. And Wendell Pierce, as the bootstrapping Republican, is literally thrown off the bus. Yeah. You know, that's a statement that I hear people also make about the movie Blazing Saddles. People say, oh, that would never be a great movie, never be made today, we're all too politically correct and woke. Well, a black guy was part of the writing team. And the whole gist of the movie is that all the white racists in that small town in the Old West are wrong and eventually yeah. come around and realize that this black sheriff is a wonderful guy. And they, they love him. Anyway. Yes. And, and let me just say, uh, I, I like to hope that a movie like this could be made today, right? And, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, anyway, anyway go, go ahead. Yeah, one of the interviews I read was with a publication called The Advocate, which is a gay publication, and they interviewed Spike Lee before this movie, maybe a year or two before it, and took him to task for his characters using homophobic slurs in his movies, and he was not having any of it. And he rebutted that many black people talk like this. That doesn't mean that it's right, but many black people were raised by the church and are therefore very conservative in their views of at least social and sexual politics. doesn't mean he agrees with it, but that is the landscape that people like this come from. Very similarly, he says he got a lot of criticism for do the right thing and the fact that there weren't any drugs, no drug dealers, no drug users. And his response to that was, that's too big of a theme to be dealt with as a subtopic in do the right thing. And then he eventually addressed it in a much bigger way in both Jungle Fever and in Clockers. It's a central theme of Clockers is the way crack was decimating black communities. So it was interesting that that interview with the advocate came out a year before this. And then we've got these two gay characters and we've got the homophobia of many other people on that bus, which leads to a fist fight, which the gay guy wins. And over the course of him winning, he cites Langston Hughes and James Baldwin. So that really seemed like, you know, the justice warrior in Spike Lee coming up and saying, any black people who are homophobic, get real, get with the program, because there are important black figures who are gay in the past and in the present. And that's not good enough to just accept these morals that you might have been raised in. Yeah. 
And then similarly with Wendell Pierce as the bootstrapping Republican, you know, he cites Colin Powell. And, you know, people have sometimes will cite somebody like Colin Powell as saying we're post-racial now. Look, you got a black man as the Joint Chief of Staff or in the case of Obama, a black yeah. man as the president or in the, in the 80s. You know, we've got Bill Cosby as the number one sitcom star or Eddie Murphy as the number one movie star. And Spike Lee's response to that is having one person in a position of power doesn't mean we're post-racial at all. And in the case of Colin Powell, a Republican who's now going to use his power to bomb people of color in the Middle East, how is that an improvement on anything? Yeah. So he's really bringing that up. And I think the overall theme of the movie is, and watching a bunch of his movies, I think if there's any point he's trying to make in his entire body of work, it's this, is that there are many different kinds of black people. Yes. And the entertainment industry has, up until Spike Lee, really presented one or two kinds of black people. There's the subservient servant or the buffoon, kind of hand in hand with that. And the you know, blackface tradition was the number one form of popular entertainment in America for a hundred years in the entertainment industry. White people did blackface, black people did blackface. And what black, the character of somebody in blackface was the happy simpleton slave. Yeah. So there was that image, and then eventually there were some more images, but said, you know, an Eddie Murphy character or a Richard Pryor character, at least as Richard Pryor was portrayed in the movies, was the comedic character, but it wasn't a three-dimensional character. They didn't really have a family. They didn't have sexual relationships, you know. They, and then, you know, a friend of mine, Nicole Stamp, pointed out there's this di dichotomy that you still see in a lot of entertainment, which is the black person who's really black and the black person who's rejected their blackness. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is, is an example of that. Are you the Will Smith character or are you Carlton? And, you know, usually the, it's, it's like the, the down black guy shows the uptight white, what, a black guy how to be black again, that kind of thing. But it's, that's very limited. Yeah. So in Do the Right Thing, you've got many different kinds of black people. And in this movie, you've got many different kinds. You've got a biracial guy. You've got a dark black guy. You've got a cop. You've got gay characters, you've got homophobes, you've got the bootstrapping Republican, you've got the former gang member, you've got many, many different kinds of black people. And you see that throughout his movies. It's just like there are many different stories that aren't being told about black people. Don't think of us as one thing. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Great. A couple of characters I want to call out just for uh, people to observe. Andre Brower, probably his character was the perhaps the least likable uh, on the bus, right? But uh, I just love Andre Brower. I mean, man, oh man, can that guy act? And you know, I think we mentioned him before, uh, TJ, in one of our podcasts. Uh, uh, but he was, uh, I, I first noticed him on Homicidal Life in the Street back in the uh, 80s, I think it was, late 80s, maybe. Great, great actor. The dead too early bernie mac who has a pretty yeah. small role but two of my favorite lines from the from the movie right when he throws wendell pierce's coat to him and, you know I, I, I it's a shame because it, you know for, for me I, I just can't repeat the lines you know but uh, watch the movie and you know what i mean and then the line when they asked him how his bubble gum bubble gum company is doing and he says it's blowing up you know which <laughs> I, just, I just thought was fantastic right? um Again, the movie, the irony of the movie is, is or I don't know if it's irony, but the, the twist of the movie is, I guess, is that they never actually make it to the Million Man March because the Ossie Davis character, who is, again, sort of the moral center of the movie in, in, in a way, right, uh, has a heart attack 
on the way, and so they end up at the hospital and missing the march because they choose to stand by him rather than leaving him alone at the hospital and they're going to the march. And this movie ends at the Lincoln uh, Memorial in Washington. They get together and they read the letter from Ossie Davis's character. And uh, when they leave, the chains that were holding the father and son together are left behind at the foot of Abraham Lincoln, uh, which I thought was a, a very nice, touching uh, scene. Have you guys ever been to the Lincoln Memorial, uh, particularly at night? Have you, uh, Milton, you've been there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, TJ, no, you have not been there. One of the most majestic and uh, moving sites it's a huge towering uh, milton you know for you know if you can't see him just rose his hands up it just it rises as you go it's uh, first of all the memorials at the top of steps and then you look up at lincoln and if you read the uh, sections from the speeches on the walls you have to stand and look up and it's 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 a cathedral in a sense it's a secular cathedral in many ways and uh just a powerful powerful and suitable ending the movie i thought there's footage of the actual million man march at the climax of the movie and that's a theme you see in a lot of spike lee movies at the end of malcolm x there's a lot of documentary footage of malcolm x himself yes the beginning of malcolm x shows footage of the rodney king beating yes uh the end of bamboozled shows maybe a three maybe longer minute montage of blackface imagery in american pop culture and black klansman ends with footage of the charlotteville march and of the horrible murder of a, pro- of a counter-protester by that guy driving the car. So that's something you see in a lot of Spike Lee movies is real-world footage just to show this is real. I'm not making These this issues. up. Yeah. yeah, this is pertinent to the world we live in now. Malcolm X isn't about what happened 30 years ago. This is relevant to what's happening today. Yeah. He makes a strong point of emphasizing that in a lot of his movies. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. I encourage people to seek out and get on the bus. I just, again, for me, mesmerizing. And I will say uh, that I found myself teary-eyed at the end of all three of these movies, right? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a softie in most senses. I do cry every time I watch Rocky. But, you know, but each of these movies hits you like a gut punch in a way. And um, it just for me leaves me feeling at the same time both overwhelmed and hopeful in an odd way right so i don't know if you guys can uh, see over my shoulder here but i've got the two buddhas here the uh, the weeping buddha and the happy buddha uh, there's a concept 
in Buddhism that uh, Chogim Trungpa used to talk about called sorrow joy. Right? That life is about holding both sorrow and joy at the same time. And I think Lee captures that well. Go ahead. Bill. This is interesting. You say that with the seven and a four, as the people <laughs> listen to it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there you go. It hadn't quite occurred to me. Yeah. So I got the happy Buddha and the sad Buddha with me here. Although, although TJ's not a sad. All right. At least not, you know, in in, in his uh, public uh, experience with me. So, <laughs> but I know it quite well. I'm sure you do. All right. Okay. Great. Um, all right. So our final movie uh, in the Spike Lee is the movie called Inside Man, and we've referred to it a few times already. And something very different. It is. It's not as much of a Spike Lee joint as most. Spike Lee joints are, right? For those of you who don't know, that's what he calls his movies, Spike Lee Joint. Uh, Inside Man is a movie about, well, you could say in a very simple level, it's about a bank robbery, right? And the police detectives and uh, hostage negotiators involved in that. But it's about quite a bit more, and it's a very complex film. It is a really well-done heist movie i'll I'll say if we want to think of it that way it's lots of twists and turns and there's some interesting characters uh sort of i don't know so much that i'd call them subplots because they are the plots that drive the the movie in the sense that the it's uh, a robbery of a bank owned by a wealthy banker uh played by christopher Plummer for old people like me would remember him from the sound of music uh he also played a very similar sort of character when he played jp getty in drawing a blank on the name of that movie about the kidnapping of getty's grandson and the refusal to pay a ransom over it right it's that rigidity so anyway uh, arthur case played by um by uh, christopher Plummer, made his money in the aftermath of world war ii or during world war ii by collaborating with the nazis and for some reason kept uh, evidence of his collaboration in a safe deposit box in his uh the main branch of his bank that did not exist on paper but was there and held these secrets he had spent his life trying to atone from his sins. By the way, the thing we forgot to mention regarding Get on the Bus, it was referred to as a Day of Atonement. Right? Uh, that was the idea behind March. And again, we have this theme of atonement, of making up for one's sins, right? Uh, at the same time of being made whole, right, uh, is what atonement is, being washed clean of our sins. And Arthur Case had devoted his life to good works to make up for the money he made uh, off of uh, the Nazis' treatment of Jews during the, uh, the Holocaust and World War II. He enlists a interesting sort of fixer character played by Jodie Foster, who I think is just excellent in this, and a re- relatively small role, but impactful. And uh, But the main characters are Denzel Washington, who plays police detective and hostage negotiator Keith Frazier. I think that's the first name. Yeah, Detective Keith Frazier. And by Clive Owen, who is the mastermind of the bank robbery, who plays a character named Dalton Russell. Again, the movie was um, set to be made by uh, 
uh, Ron Howard, and you could see it as a Ron Howard film for sure, right? It is just kind of a procedural sort of heist movie, but given really interesting twists and having this sort of moral component to it through the lens of, oddly enough, the bank robber, right? The, the bank robber is kind of the most traditionally ethical sort of character, you know, in, in a way, right? Uh, in what he is setting out to do. So, I don't know, guys, tell me about your reaction to Inside Man. Yeah, I think it was, I think it was, I think it's brilliant the way that it was directed. I think, like you said, the bank robber was literally brilliant. One of the first things that was really interesting. I think from perspective is like how I felt it if I'm looking at my three sensors. Like this one was really, it lit up my brain more than anything. Whereas the other three and other Spike Lee joints hit me in the gut. This one didn't hit me in the gut, but it really excited my mind with just how clever the heist went off and the underlining meaning behind the actual heist to affect like something that um, had been done before, which was making money off of like the lives of people in the past and like, Oh, I'm going to do right now to try to atone. So it's very interesting dynamic of a movie that I really enjoy uh, just because the way it even ended. I like the way that it kind of just kind of left it, but it ended in such a beautiful way. Yeah. 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 Again, different in the themes. I I agree with you. It was kind of a head movie. It was uh, kind of a popcorn movie in some ways too, not like a Marvel characters, you know, popcorn movie, but it, it was entertaining. Right, made you think, uh, intriguing. Didn't touch on race as much. There were a couple of scenes that did touch on race, but it was not the reason for the movie, right? Like other Spike Lee movies tend to be. How about you, TJ? What's your reaction to Inside Man? Yeah, very much. Like it is, it's a puzzle. You know, the the robbery is not the the robbers make it seem like this is a complicated, sophisticated set of thieves going at this, but underneath it, the reason they're doing it is a moral imperative. And the movie starts with the Clive Owen robber character addressing the camera. So that's never quite explained. Is like, is he filming himself saying this? Is this going to be released at some point online? Like, that's not clear. But what he says is, you know, here's who I am. And he uses his own name. Here's where I am. He says, the why? Because I can. And once it's clear what he's done and why he's done it, namely to bring justice to a war profiteer, you know, somebody who literally made money and made, built a fortune off of holocaust victims you get the sense of like this guy took a huge risk in doing this because it's the right thing to do and didn't steal a dollar from the bank uh no he stole the diamonds actually right not from the bank not from the bank he stole them from arthur case so he did there was a profit motive in in the movie right because he did steal the diamonds and he took the information uh, related to the nazis as kind of an insurance policy Tell to tell Arthur Case, don't come after me, right? Don't you make a big deal out of this, right? So, so yeah, but he understood that this guy was vulnerable because of his sins, right? And I am going to make him pay and make it clear that somebody he knows there is accountability in a sense. And there were giant stacks of cash that they didn't touch, yes, yes. Like they easily could have taken any or huge amounts of that just because it's there. And it would be great to be really rich with untraceable cash. And yeah. they didn't. And then it comes out at the end. They were using fake guns. Mm-hmm. They never put anyone in actual danger. 
they staged a killing to make it look like it was real. But that was just a prop with fake blood. So it wasn't like, you know, if you want to break an, make an omelet, you got to break some eggs. It wasn't that at all. It's right. like, we're going to do this thing. And we're going to make sure that there are no actual victims to this other than the fear and trauma of the people who are, you know, hostages or believe that they're in danger. And then whether we find out, whether they find out later that they weren't, doesn't matter. They still believed it for that amount of time. And that would be a horrible traumatic experience. But they were never in danger of actually being killed with bullets, at least from the robbers. Right. A couple of things, too. So, so the reason I thought of this as a one-ish sort of movie, okay, again, because there was this idea of justice to, you know, someone who, you know, had done wrong. Even though, again, you know, one has to ask, at what point do we offer forgiveness, right? I mean, at what point, you know, have we paid for our crimes? And, uh, you know, that's always a question. Uh, and it's one that is here as well. Um, and, um, but the the precision of the bank robber uh, of Dalton Russell, right? He said, look, listen closely because... I only say things once. I don't repeat myself. And, you know, and so there was this, you know, and there was just this methodical, deliberate, you know, perfect crime, okay, uh, in a sense. And in fact, they don't even pursue it at the end because they pull off the crime in such a way that there's no evidence that a crime actually took place because the only thing that's missing are the jewels and the uh, the documents out of a post office box owned by Arthur Case, which does not exist on paper, right? So there's no crime to pursue, even though they got away with the diamonds and the documents, okay? So uh, very one-ish there. And there were just these touches with the uh, Dalton Russell character. I, I particularly think of the scene where the kid was playing the video game on the little handheld device and it was a i don't even know if it was an amplified version of what was it grand theft auto uh you know that was pretty gruesome and here the bank robber robber is kind of offended by the gratuitous violence in the video game so there was a bit of a statement there of like i have to talk to your father about this or, or something right so uh, so so i saw him as kind of a one-ish character and and that video game by the way was an addition to the script from spike lee oh, that was not in the original draft and he had a video game created so that the screen would show that and he told the video game developers make the most brutal game you could possibly imagine so he does again he inserted this theme of like glorification of violence is not a good thing yes that is an interesting point because in spike lee's movies there's not that much violence right and when it is it's shocking and always negative right there's i can't think of any glorification of violence in um, any of spike lee's movies that that come to mind interesting theme um clockers has the exact opposite take on it clockers makes a great point of showing violence as a horrific thing yes and the opening credits of clockers shows obviously that it's something they've recreated but shots of like photographs close-up photographs of a shooting victim yeah. and he stated very specifically he made that movie to address the romanticization of violence in many many movies that were coming at the time yes Yes. Uh, very good movie. I highly recommend it. The book was excellent, too. I read the book years ago, so uh, by Richard Price. Very, very good author. All right, great. Anything else, guys, about Inside Man that struck you as one-ish or highlighted the type one theme? 
I think um, there were paints of Denzel's character to like near, especially near the very end, um, or probably throughout a lot because like his never-ending quest to like get to writing the wrong of the person who's done the ultimate wrong yeah. to keep pushing, regardless of yeah, my career. You might elevate my career really quickly because you want me to shut up, right? He's like, nope, yeah. it's not going to yeah. stop me. Yeah. I'm going to keep going. Yeah. So it's just this painting, I would say, of oneness, even in his character and his pursuit for the right thing and to do the right thing, to correct the things that have been wrong, pass from the heist onto the detective. Good, good call out because you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, he did, he, he got the promotion. I mean, for playing along with the Jodie Foster character and giving her what he wanted, he was, you know, got that return. He actually recorded uh, part of the conversation with her and the mayor too. So he had a little bit of blackmail off them, but he didn't use it, right? I mean, he, he used a little bit, but then gave it to them. And, and you're right, pursued the crimes. And for him, Arthur Case had not paid big enough price because he uh, gave her evidence to go to the UN War Crimes Commission um, to, you know, pursue justice on Arthur Case. TJ, any, anything you would uh, add? Yeah, go ahead. yeah, to build on that, that's also after his supervisor has told him close the case. Yes. It's done. Yeah. yeah. And that character in general, in some ways, isn't necessarily a stereotypical one, but. He but there's a bit of one going on. Integrity. Yeah. Yeah. It's very one ish in that he's all about integrity. Yeah. He's a genuinely good police officer. He cares. He demands respect from other characters like Willem Dafoe's cop character, who's, you know, initially kind of dissing him. Right. He's also, you know, you see him interviewing a bunch of the different hostages because that's part of the complexity is it's not quite clear who is a hostage and who is actually one of the robbers. And he's humorous and compassionate as he does it, as well as effective. He's also really smart. You know, he figures out that the robbers are stalling for time. He's brave. You know, he goes in unarmed at great risk to himself. So he's kind of like this perfect person in a lot of ways. Yeah. Including being a well-rounded perfect person. He's not this stiff, upright icon of moral rectitude, although he has that dimension to him. He's also funny and charismatic. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a lot going for him. And adding to that, even like his his home, he was housing his girlfriend's brother who wasn't doing anything for his own life. Just these elements, like you said, these one ish elements of like, oh, I'm still helping, taking care of such and such and trying to improve the lives here. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There, there, there was that sub theme of the missing money from the drug raid and uh, that he was under investigation for. And it was interesting because, uh, you know, he's at the beginning of the movie, he's about to be interviewed by the Internal Affairs Bureau yeah. investigation. And by the end of the movie, they find out that he has been cleared. And when they ask him, do you want to know where we found the money? He said, was it in my bank account? You know, and they said, no. And he said, was it in my summer house in the Hamptons or whatever, which he doesn't actually have. They said, no. And they said, well, then I don't care. And that was the end of it. Right. And so again, it was this moral integrity, I think came clear. Yeah. One more thing, just a quick theme. Uh, one of the victims who's sent out early is a character called Vikram, who's a Sikh and the cop immediately misidentifies him as an Arab and slams him to the ground and hurts him and then takes off his turban assuming he's a bomb so later when they're interviewing him the fact that the persistent racism that he's on the receiving end of as a Sikh post 9-11 is part of the conversation 
And I don't know for sure, but I'll bet you anything that's another edition of Spike Lee's. It's like, there's racism all over the place. Black people are not the only recipients of it. And yeah. again, Denzel Washington's character is able to deal with him honestly. Yeah. And, not, and even make a joke with him. Yeah, yeah, and, and and it's a great line the way that scene ends. Where it's like, but I bet you can get a taxi, huh? <laughs> yes, and just even building on that, like the hints, the critiques of capitalism, the critiques of how the cops dealt with people when they came out, first shooting them with rubber bullets yes. before being like, like hold up, like these can be innocent people. Stop, you know, right. like there's these little beady critiques, like you just saying, TJ, that like Spike throws in. It's like here, like there, that aren't with the main thing, but they also are things that are super relevant to what's going on in our uh, current climate and culture. Yeah. And I think he did that in a way that's not ham-handed, right? Showing the pr- uh, police brutality or the, the, the violence inherent often in, uh, in police work, but also capturing the fear of police and how. You know, again, nobody can argue that there are not abuses, uh, but I mean, raise your hand if you would like to be a cop today, right? I mean, what, you know, what more challenging job could there be than, you know, having to be a police officer and navigate these? And even the police officer that he talks to, the one that first discovers the bank robbery and is talking later with about the kid who pulled gun on him and uses uh, some racist terms and you know so this is one of the scenes where race another scene where race enters into it but it's hard not to have compassion for that police officer right you know in again kind of the circumstances that he had to deal with and that he's operating so shows the complexity of this issue right that racism is a problem without a doubt okay and structural racism is a problem and it's not always black and white right in these sort of situations okay so this brings us to the end of our spike lee marathon and um you know our our podcast is shorter than malcolm x but you know perhaps not by that much (laughs) (laughs) uh, but uh this has been a fantastic conversation and you know again for you know i think spike lee is an underappreciated filmmaker the five bloods i think was a great movie uh on netflix uh, recently i think that came out last year straight to netflix excellent movie again uneven like some of spike lee's movies can be but um if our listeners have not dived into the work of spike lee uh these four movies are a great place to start again i would also add like we've talked about before the 20 25th hour and clockers have, have either of you guys seen 25th hour uh with uh, uh oh boy what a good good movie um the norton the guy from uh, edward uh fight club uh what was his name tj uh, edward norton edward norton thank you yeah really really good movie uh, and brian cox who i just love plays his father uh, uh rosario dawson is in it too excellent i highly recommend adding 25th hour to your spike lee marathon and uh, milton thank you so much for joining us um uh, for bringing your knowledge and experience to the show again i just want to uh reiterate that uh, people can find you on is, I'm sorry, give us your website again, Kaizen. KaizenCareers.com. All right, and Kaizen is K I 
K-A-I-Z-E-N, and uh, check out Milton's work and his podcast and do it for the gram. Uh, it was a real pleasure to have you here. So thanks for joining us. Final words, guys. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I definitely enjoyed myself. There's a wealth of knowledge between you two. I learned quite a bit just being here about your like movie and like knowledge and everything from directors. And I'm thankful just for the experience and uh, love the work of looking at how directors and their type structure impacts their work uh, in the world, to be honest. Yeah. TJ, final thoughts? Yeah. I'll, well, here's another Spike Lee interview quote. I don't think racism can be eliminated in my lifetime or my children's or grandchildren's. But I think it's something we have to strive for. I'm going to keep working toward that day coming. Great. Thanks. One final shout I want to do here. I forgot to mention who I love. Terrence, Terrence Blanchard, who ended up composing a lot of Spike Lee's movies after Do the Right Thing. Uh, he did the music uh, for the other three movies we talked about. Explore Terrence Blanchard's music if you like jazz at all. And also the song Alabama uh, by John Coltrane. Uh, plays prominently in a number of these movies, uh, which is is a great, great song. Coltrane, again, one of the great jazz musicians, and uh, I encourage you to listen to Coltrane and start out with the song Alabama, which I'm sure you can find on wherever you get your music. And so this has been another episode of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm not sure what's on tap next, TJ, but uh, I'm sure it's going to be a bunch of more great movies and by a fascinating director. So look forward to seeing you all next time. You've been listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, which is produced and edited by Seth Creekmore and is part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. Don't forget to go online and support the podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. See you next time.